All right, Shannon, welcome to the show. We know you are the co-founder of Rancher, and we're going to get into all of that. But I want to start with uh, something that you love to do and I love to do, and that's uh, snow skiing. So it says here in your Twitter bio, you're an avid skier. I unfortunately did not get a chance to ski this year. So I want to know two things. How long have you been skiing and what is the best North American ski resort? Oh man. So you just made my day. The, uh, so I've been skiing my, not my whole life. I started in fourth grade. I, um, my dad was in the army and we lived in Germany and I, um, my mom was like an early, early skier. Like she learned to ski, you know, back in the like late fifties, early sixties, she learned to ski up in, uh, at Snow Basin up in Utah. Oh, and wow. Nice. They met over in Germany. She was like in the, in the typist pool, I think in at the, the base, my dad was a stationed dad, but she like was the, the head of the ski club in Heidelberg, Germany, and used to ski everywhere around the Alps in her twenties. And, um, and so amazingly I, I now kind of like why did you wait so long to teach me because i didn't start skiing until like fourth grade i was like 10 and um, and but uh but i first started skiing then and, and have oh, really never stopped I've, I've skied as much as i can ever since then the best is uh i mean I, i'm pr- i love snow basin actually my mom's early resort is one of my very favorites in in utah if you just want to find fantastic steep beautiful snow and not a lot of crowds but I would say my favorite is Crested Butte in Colorado. I, oh, really? Okay. I worked there for a little while. Um, I love it. It's just, you know, epic, epic skiing. Well, I need to know more. Like, where is Snow Basin, Utah? I feel like is that not in Park City? It's not on the – like, where exactly no, is that no, situated? No, you got Brandon, I'm giving – this is like the inside tip of all inside tips. If I you're love going it. Because uh, Park City, great. Deer Valley, great. Um, you know, it's all great around Salt Lake. But if you just go up straight up to Ogden – and then you head inland or east into the mountains, you get to this unbelievable resort that's like, uh, it's like an hour from everywhere. It's like an hour from, from Park City, kind of an hour and 20 minutes from Salt Lake. And it's, it's owned by the same people that own Sun Valley. I think the only two things they own are Sun Valley and Snow Basin. And it has no village. It just has this incredible lodge. And then you get into just epic skiing it's where they held the downhill for the olympics when they had them in in uh, in utah of all the runs the the john paul it's called it's this amazing amazing run you go up in this little beer can lift and get you to the top and anyways i can go on and on but it is it's like heaven it's the best snow the best place and nobody knows about it that's fantastic all right well man all right well that's it we can just shut down the podcast this is a new resort for me i didn't i've only done uh, deer valley uh, which, of course, the luxury is fantastic, and Vail and Breckenridge and some of the major resorts. But it sounds like you've you've kind of gotten off the beaten path. That's, that's what I always like. I'm always looking for people to uh, make some expert recommendations to me. Uh, there's, I mean, I, uh, you know, if you really want to get me going, let's start talking about skiing in Europe because that's that's where really oh. my, my very favorite skiing is almost all in Europe because it's just so great kind of skiing town to town and sort of jumping around in a, you know, you kind of start in one valley and you end up in another. But as far as U.S. skiing, yeah, Squaw is pretty great, too. That's my, like, home resort here in the Bay Area where I live. I, I don't make it out to Utah or Colorado much. So if I have a choice, I'm always a season ticket holder up at Squaw, and uh, I love it. It's great. It's fantastic. Well, did you? it sounds like you mentioned earlier, was there a time in your life, did you, you said you worked at a ski resort. Did you actually live on a ski uh, in a ski resort for, like, a, a winter or two, like do the ski bob lifestyle a little bit? <laughs> sort of. I I, uh, when I graduated from high school, I, um, I was like super optimistic with my colleges. I think I didn't have that great of grades or anything, but I applied to 
I really wanted to go to Northwestern in Chicago. I, was, I wanted to be a journalist, loved the idea of going to journalism school, really wanted to go. And I, and I come from a big Catholic family, so I applied to Northwestern and I applied to Notre Dame, which, um, <laughs> okay. you know, there, I don't know sense. why on earth I wanted to go to the Midwest so badly, but I wanted to go out there. And then, uh, but I, you know, I did pretty well on like the SATs and things like that, but I think my GPA was like a three or something like that it wasn't particularly great. So I only applied to these schools. I had no, I mean, my parents didn't really give me, have a ton of advice for how to get into great colleges. So I, I just went with nothing, no other second choices. And, and so I didn't get into either of them. And kind of, I think it was May of my senior year, I'm like, crap, I really need to go somewhere to college because I, I want to transfer to those schools I wanted to go into originally. And I didn't want to go to a JC or stay in town. So um I went to some college like fair and they, they were, uh, there was Regis university in Denver was there and they were like, Hey, your grades look good. Well enough, you know, we'll give you a, a scholarship. Why don't you come to Denver? And I was like, Oh, that's a great idea. I should go somewhere where they have snow. Um, I didn't end up going there. I ended up like kind of researching all the schools out there in Colorado. And I found this little school called Western state, which is right up in, it's in Gunnison, Colorado, which is literally the middle of nowhere. And, um, it was great. It's it's right on the it's like twenty minutes from Crested Butte. So I, I went there and you know as part of the program you could work like a couple days at Crested Butte if you had good grades and they would give you a free pass. So I worked a few great days a season at Crested Butte and skied and uh and, and did well enough to to transfer after a couple of years to to Northwestern where I wanted to go. So I ended up getting to go do that whole Medill journalism school that I wanted to, but I, I got there you know, kind of the long way, but definitely was fantastic because I, I never would have found Crested Butte, another epic ski resort, if it weren't for for kind of ending up out in Gunnison. Man, this this sounds like the perfect life. Like, go to school for a couple of years, do all your skiing, get out of your system, and then, and then only at the end transfer in at the very end. Be like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get some really good well, degrees <laughs> to give you a job. This is I don't know, man. You, you're already you were you were on it already. You'd already figured out life at a very young age. So good for you. I certainly didn't feel like it when I kept getting these rejection letters. My senior, I'm like, wow, I've really screwed this up. And I, but. You know, it's like anything in life. You kind of have to make your plan, you know, fail a bit, pick yourself up and figure out what the heck you're going to do afterwards. And um, usually there's, you know, usually there's fun options out there. And, and this one, I remember when we, my, my mom and I, I hadn't decided which of these colleges in Colorado to go to until like after I graduated. So I graduated on like a Friday or Saturday. And then like Monday morning, my mom and I just drove out to Colorado to go visit them. And I, and I showed up in the ski town and I was just like, Okay, I'm done. This is it. This is the place I need to be. This is so beautiful. And so, uh, you know, they even did this thing where they didn't do classes on Wednesday. Oh, they called them Western Wednesday. Oh so you gosh. got every Wednesday plus the weekends. I know. It's just genius. There, there was a marketing genius somewhere that was like, how are we going to get people to go to this college in the middle of nowhere? And, uh, and of course, the college was just a ton of ski bums. The only downside is I think it was like, 70 percent guys you know which was, which was a good reason to transfer yeah, out that's true everything has its downside well i don't know you've you've lived i you know now i feel like in my life my goal is just to uh is just to find a lifestyle where i can be a ski bump that's it so i feel like i'm doing it all backwards but you did it in the right order so but i you know this is i thought this was super interesting you know i don't we've done a bunch of interviews as far as i know you're the first person i personally know that went to the medill am i saying that medill school of journalism at northwestern right which is yeah. I think it's generally considered the number one, I guess maybe Missouri sometimes in there, but it's not like you don't accidentally, like you don't just show up and be like, I want to major in journalism and go to there. So 
was journalism like a lifelong dream? Like how, how did you decide to get into that world? You know, I, um, I, I love to write. I was pretty passionate about the idea of journalism and, um, you know, I, I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I started writing as young as I can remember. I was always writing usually non-fiction, I'm usually fiction, not non-fiction, but, um, in high school I wrote for the newspaper and, as a, you know, I started doing internships at the local newspapers and I just loved the idea of, of being a reporter. In fact, I loved it. I mean, it was just, it, it really felt like something I would want to do. And there was this feeling that you would be out there, I don't know, exposing the truth and taking on, um, you know, all of these, you know, kind of nefarious interests in the world. And it was, uh, it was great. I mean, I, I, I decided to go, I mean, it was funny, like I said, I came from this big Catholic family. And so I had three of my uncles and or two of my uncles and three of my cousins had all gone to Notre Dame. And they were all like, you know, we'd watch we'd, every Saturday was like Notre Dame football around around the house. I've got like 50 cousins and, and we'd <laughs> and it was just <laughs> I've got to be the only person who got into Notre Dame and still didn't go. Because I remember when I when I kind of told everyone I was going to go to Northwestern, like my uncles took me to lunch and they're like, you know, are you sure this you really, really are making a horrible decision here? You need to go. You need to go to, I mean, they're telling me about the fathers there and how they're, and I'm like, you know, I think for me, it's a, it's a good option. And, and, um, I never looked back. I loved it. It was a fantastic education. I, I loved the school. I, um, it, you know, it was hard coming in as a transfer because you had to kind of compact a lot into two years, including one semester or uh, they did like quarters. So one quarter working at a newspaper. So it was only like five quarters on campus to, to kind of get everything finished. So in a lot of ways, I feel like the downside of switching schools was I didn't really have the chance to kind of fully absorb it. Um, but the education was tremendous. The people were, were incredible. I mean, just on every level, I, I was, I was really impressed with, with the people you met there. And, and best of all, they had this incredible program where they, they focused on injustice and, um, you know, investigative reporting and, and, you know, kind of freeing wrongly convicted people, which was, which was well, the highlight of my time there was working on, on that program. And, you know, kind of researching cases. And, and you know, while we were there, uh, they, we kind of broke it into groups. And one of the other groups, they actually, you know, were able to to um, exonerate someone who was on death row. Oh, wow. Wow. Just That's awesome. So you were working with these teams and researching and, and working with journalists from, I mean, it, it really kind of exposed all the power of journalism. Um, and uh, and yet for me, you know, when I was actually out and teaching and, and working as a and, uh, I, you know, I went and did the teaching newspaper part where you go on to work for a newspaper. I, I couldn't help but feel like I, I don't know why, but I, it was the first time where I, I started realizing I might not want to be a journalist because you know, I spent all day running around um, covering, you know, covering fires and car accidents and, and just sort of the daily news of, of a town. And I don't know why I started thinking maybe I, I had this feeling that I was sort of covering people doing things, but I wasn't really doing things. I just had this really weird emotional decision somewhere in there where I was like, you know, I, you know, I, I enjoy writing and I, I think this would be interesting. Um, when I graduated, I, I got a couple job offers to go work for different newspapers, but I, um, I just decided to, I'd like to try business actually. Like I, I, you know, I had done these really fun interviews where I'd interviewed all these CEOs and, and one was like the CEO of a wine company and just talking to him about, you know, kind of building up this winery and, and the building. And I was like, you know, that sounds actually really interesting. And I think I might be good at that. And so I, um, yeah, I decided not to be a journalist and instead to dive into my other passion, which was always technology. And this was 99. So it was kind of the, you know, still the go-go days of the dot-com boom. And I'm from the Bay area. So I, 
I kind of almost couldn't help but find a job in in tech when I when I came back from college. Um, yeah, so that's and, a good. Um, that's definitely a, a good segue here. So you. You, you know, I always think sometimes like the best thing about college is just, if you just learn like stuff you don't want to do, like mission accomplished too. Like I actually had some jobs in college and I was like, thank gosh, I don't want to do that anymore. So, so that was, that's good. So you, you know, you graduate with this journalism degree, obviously at, you know, one of the best schools. And then it looks like you, you go from there was a securant, securant, your first job as a marketing manager. Is that your first foray into the world of tech? Actually, no, my first job was even before that. I ended up at this, um, like, like I, I live up, my family's from up in uh, Sonoma County, up in the wine country area. And so I, um, I was, you know, I'd come home, I was living with my parents, I was trying to figure out a job. And I, I, I think on, I found on Craigslist, this company hiring a PR agent in, um, in Marin. And, and, and so I, I applied and it was a, it was an open source software company, which, you know, in 99, there weren't any open mm-hmm. source software. It was funny because it was an open source accounting software company and it wasn't open source. Like we do free and open source. It's a open source, commercial open source. You actually, you paid more to get the source code so you could then customize the product. Oh, okay. All right. There you go. Software. And, uh, it was great. It was, a, it, was it was like a crash course. I remember, you know, I, I just remember kind of, you know, asking someone what SQL stood for, you know, and that was kind of the kind of things I was learning then and, and trying to, to just kind of wrap my brain around how software worked and how people ran it. And, you know, they had this great reseller channel of all these companies that would like specialize the software for different industries. It was kind of early. I mean, ERP was, was a big thing for big companies, but it was like mid-market ERP before Microsoft Dynamics and Great Plains and all these things had taken over. And, um, I was only there like less than a year because, um, I, I, you know, it was, it was kind of a slow moving company that was family owned. I've been around for a long time, 20 years old or so. And I, after a little bit, I, I really wanted to get into the city. I wanted to like actually work in San Francisco, not in the suburbs. And, and I was really interested in trying to get a little deeper in the technology side. Um, and so Securant was the, was doing access control software, like web access control. They were one of the the first companies that built you know, the, you know, this ability to manage users and do auth and, uh, authentication and stuff for websites. And, uh, and, and I, I kind of landed there as about the, I don't know, the 30th person, 40th person, somewhere in there. And, um, and it was just an amazing run. That company got, got quite successful. We, you know, closed all sorts of large customers. It really was my first experience with a VC backed traditional startup software company. A whole bunch of the team had worked at Legato and other kind of, uh, you know, coming out of, of other really successful software companies in the late, in the early nineties. And so it, it just sort of exposed me to the pace and all of the awesomeness that was going on around application development in the cloud. Right. What were you doing? Like product marketing stuff? Like what was your role? Oh, I, I, I was like the marketing coordinator was the name of it, which basically meant initially I was just like the lowest person in marketing. I don't know what, they didn't really have a, <laughs> there was no role. It was just like, imagine all the, but there was only two people in marketing. So I was only the second person. So there was, there was this Your great second guy. command is how you should say that. You were second <laughs> in command of the marketing department. But it meant that everyone was hired, was hired ahead of me. <laughs> like anytime new people came in, they were, they were like my boss's boss or, you know, <laughs> I think they were like, by the time it was done, there was like at least three or four layers of people that were hired above me. But I, I, I was lucky. I kind of got in and, and because I was early and I was really comfortable writing, I, I did a lot of product marketing. I, I did events. I did all like the events. I was like the person that would fly out and set up conferences and, and, you know, trade shows and talk. I think that's probably where I got comfortable talking was I was like, uh, you know, right away out at conferences, meeting people, talking and selling and, 
Um, and I, that was probably the thing I, I ended up being really good at there was just I could explain what we did really well, really quickly and understood it really well because that kind of stuff was always easy. It was just easy to understand how the pieces got together. And so before long, I was like traveling all over the world. It was amazing. I was like and I was I was speaking. I was doing a ton of, of product presentations and speaking at conferences about what we were doing you know, in Sweden and in Germany and just, you know, just, it was great. And so for, for a good couple of years, well, until Securant was bought, um, it was just, we were just ripping and roaring and uh, it was a ton of fun to kind yeah. of get the first successful cool. startup you need to kind of, you know, absolutely sink your teeth into it and know you want to do this type of work. No, definitely. Well, it sounds like, um, it sounds like an excellent experience. I always tell people, sometimes people ask me like, you're hiring product marketing, like what kind of background and stuff. I always say, like, I don't think it's used enough, but I always say you should go look at journalists, right? Because they're used to, they know that they have to like go get the story. They have to go talk to people. And then they usually know they have to be able to summarize it in a simple, easy to understand way. And it's like, man, if there's something we need more in product marketing, it's that. Oh, don't yeah. come back with a list of uh, <laughs> features that are so complicated. We have no idea what anyone's talking about. Please come back with a a well-written summary of what it is we're building. So I think journalism is the perfect background. So you, it sounds like, so it's the current good, good exit. And then is it, and then you're off to uh, Taros. Am I saying that one right? Yeah. Taros, Taros did the first web application firewall back in the early, early. Wow. You know, this like, is like, wow. Like, this is like the stone age of the internet right here. Awesome. Yeah. Like, it was a great company. Um, really smart people. In fact, uh, Shen, my co-founder for cloud.com and here at Rancher Labs, he was actually a founder at Taros as well. But interestingly enough, he was gone by the time I got there. So <laughs> his he had, he had, was, there was like five or six guys who started Taros. Um, I think Shen had just wrapped up at, at Sun. and But his roommate from, from college, a guy named Rajiv Marani, was uh, the VP of engineering over at Taros. In fact, you know, the, a lot of uh, <laughs> how you get connected to people is crazy. But uh, so I didn't actually, I didn't even know about Shang while I was at Terrace, which is funny that we later met and, and found out about this relationship. But I got to know a lot of um, amazing people. Terrace was a little early for the market. Um, you know, web application firewall was was like socks was just beginning to happen. There was kind of the idea of controls coming. And um, Terrace uh, ended up getting bought by the NetScaler team at Citrix and mm -hmm. becoming a huge part of, of what that would go on to be. But um, it, it never exploded in popularity while we were building it. I would say it was hard selling. It was early market. You know, we had uh, we were trying to do you know software appliances and um, getting throughput and everything else was was still really tough. So there was a uh, it was early. You know, and, and that company was you know another great engineering group that that you know got to sort of see how the sausage is made. I think I was like employee twenty there, mm -hmm. and there I was doing. Like all of the demand gen side of marketing. So I was. So what was profit. it? I was going to say this is a little foreshadowing because it seems like you have this uh, relationship with Citrix that runs <laughs> multiple years. We'll say. So what was it like to be acquired by Citrix this time? Was it exciting? Well, was it like a, or was it like one of these fire sales? Like what was it? Like it describe the mood. I had, I had left though. I left like a few months before Citrix oh, got acquired. Okay. To, uh, to go to this company, C Commerce. So I didn't go through. I wasn't there when the acquisition happened. The acquisition was. Um, yeah, it was just after, but it was a, it was a good, good acquisition. You know, it was, wasn't like a huge acquisition, but it was a good acquisition. The team went all over. I think everyone was there, you know, did well. Um, I remember, I think I bought my shares and I don't think I made any money or much money mm -hmm. if, if any. So I don't think it was like a huge payout for people, but I think it, uh, 
the technology then really took off inside the Netscaler once it was kind of there associated with that. But I had gone to this company, C-Commerce, where a friend of mine had become the CEO and he was, it was a classic sort of, I think of like the post.com bubble companies. There were all these companies that sort of blew up when, when the dot-com bubble popped and they were, they had lots of money in. Like C-Commerce had raised like maybe 80 million back when that was even, I mean, that was a ton back then to do supply chain analytics and business intelligence and, you know, supply chain software. Um, and, uh, and this friend of mine who had been the VP of sales over at Securant, he becomes the CEO and he asked me to come over and, and run marketing. So I had the first chance to go and kind of take over the whole responsibility of running marketing. And so I really liked him. I, I love the idea. I went over and uh, it was, it was, it was a blast. It was probably to this day, it was it's definitely one of my favorite jobs I ever had. Um, so hard, you know, this company had like nine customers, you know, 80 million in and nine, nine customers. And we had to, um, we had to kind of try and find, there was nothing alike. I mean, they didn't, they, they were in all sorts of I was going to say, I think this makes for some tough board meetings. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was just like, you're looking at this company thinking like, how on earth did they spend all this money? And, and how did they end up in this, this position? And, um, and, and what we didn't quite realize before we got there was that it was basically it was basically just a BI tool. They had a little they had a BI tool that and they had these great contract consultants who really understood supply chain. And so they would come in and they would kind of talk to the to the client, figure out the real supply chain problem they have, and then customize this BI tool to give them really good insights into where problems were in their supply chain. But it was just I mean, there was no technology at all. Like this was, you know, you could do the same exact thing with any BI tool. So it was like this really, really well funded. Well, not anymore. I, mean, I think they'd spent it all, but there was this, you know, this kind of VC backed consulting company. Um, mm -hmm. And so, been there. You know, yeah, we've all had this yeah. kind of job. Yep. Yeah, been there. Like, <laughs> this is not good. And so we managed to figure out that the the one commonality we had was we were we actually had we we started to close a few customers in the same uh, industry, which was retail. We got kind of retail and um, and CPG. So we closed. I think it was Albertsons and Safeway and Procter and Gamble and handful of companies in that space that were all trying to solve um, like out of stocks, like how to solve out of stocks at the grocery store, at the, the retail store. And so we, we just built, you know, we built up as much technology as we could around that problem. And that got it, it just enough momentum that we could make a case to NCR who was big in, in, you know, Teradata part of NCR who was selling a lot of analytics and data management to retailers that this would be a really useful product. And so they, um, they they bought it uh, not for any big profit, not given what was put into it, but it was a great outcome for the team and the customers. And you know, it was uh, I didn't go over. I I was like ready to move on. I, <laughs> like, I realized supply chain is not where I want to spend my time, and <laughs> I certainly was not a, con a, a supply chain consultant. So um, yeah, I, I I jumped over to you know back into but not, well not only did you jump over but it seems like you kind of made a, at least a little shift here you're at this point like you're still in marketing but it looks like you you go to solid core and then you start to get into sales is that was that a deliberate thing or do or you just called into sales like battlefield promotion how did that work well you know it was um yeah i was kind of called into it i was i was working i was joined as, as like director of marketing and running all of the like demand gen and inside sales and a bunch of other things for solid core and then um, we had no one in Europe. And so I just started doing the deals in Europe myself, uh, because it was early days and there was no one doing them. And I, and I closed a couple deals and, and the CEO was like, you know, I think you should be in sales. I think you're in the wrong line of work. You're, you're really good at selling. Why don't you, um, we need someone to go and 
do some business. Why don't you in your family? I just had a son, and he's like, why don't you move over to London and see if you can build us up in in sales? And um, that's you know, my fa- wife- was that like fan- a fantastic job, or was that like I need to talk to the wife? Like, what kind of moment was that? <laughs> well, I definitely need to talk to the wife. Um, so I talked to the wife, and uh, but she, yeah, we, it was fantastic. It was a it was an amazing experience. It. Um, you know, we, we, uh, solid core was kind of an interesting company. They did, um, their, 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 the idea behind the company was a host intrusion prevention system. So it was kind of back in the, you know, Terrace was, was, uh, app security secure. It was like user level auth security. This was, so it was, it was kind of an area I felt really comfortable and I understood security, but it did host intrusion prevention. So it did this whole bit where it would, um, you'd install it on a, like a windows machine and it would basically, you know, change enough bits so that you couldn't run any zero day attacks on, on the machine. And, um, but part of that meant it also did like change management because any change had to be sort of signed or you have to kind of use a key to make changes to the system. So, so we started selling it, trying to sell it as this host intrusion prevention system. And there was, there just wasn't a ton of appetite in the market. This was sort of 2006 uh, timeframe. And, um, you know, there was, there were some other products. There was, you know, we got some deals, but it wasn't a ton. And, um, and then, you know, they kind of pivoted a little bit and started trying to sell it more like kind of like tripwire where it was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. change detection, change yeah. management story, you know, but it, it didn't have the benefit of being open source and widely adopted. So you kind of like were, and it had this sort of control element to it. So it was like, hey, you get change control instead of just change visibility. And, um, it, you know, it was kind of okay, but it turned out the sweet spot for the product. None of those were really kind of hitting, but the, the sweet spot for the product ended up being in embedded systems because embedded systems, you actually want to kind of lock them down to the code that's actually deployed. So ATM machines were one of our first really good wins. And then we started winning like medical devices and, and all sorts of embedded systems. And um and that ended up being the, the kind of sweet spot. So it, it was really fun because we were working with, you know, I was working with like Siemens and uh, mm-hmm. NCR and all these companies that are European on embedded systems. And, um, you know, the business kind of took got going. And, you know, I had a two-year visa to stay in Europe. I stayed the whole two years, kind of hired up a team. And um, and when I came back, it was like, it was actually kind of, the business was, was just taking off. The 2008 recession sort of struck as I think I came home in 2008 in the fall. And, um you know, I, there just wasn't a really obvious fit for me coming back. I didn't have any place in the company, you know, that, you know, I wasn't going to take over America. Yeah, funny how that works. Like you, they send you to Europe and they bring you back. You're like, hmm, I don't know if you fit in anymore. I, I've heard yeah, like this know, multiple like, times. I don't know what I'm going to do here. That, that is all that interesting. And um, at the same time, uh, I got introduced to Shen uh, through, through one of the mutual friends back from the Terrace days. And, and he was starting up cloud.com. Like he, it was just an idea. He was going to do this company and, we started talking about it and, and, and this idea of building a, you know, a stack of software to, to, you know, kind of similar to what AWS was at the time seemed really appealing to me. And, All right. uh, but now before we get too far in, I, I, this is a long, I've heard many uh, stories here about who exactly obtained and registered cloud.com. So can you set the record straight? Who ultimately oh, yeah. gets credit for five? Cause as soon as I, I remember I, so I know Mark Kinkle and some, uh, a few other people, but I remember, him uh, like sending me an email or whatever, seeing that he's there. And I just, I didn't even know what it was. I just saw the URL. I was like, this company's going to do really well. And then, but then from then I've heard, I, you know, as they say, success has a thousand fathers. I've heard at least 55 different people did it at, at cloud.com or the ones that did it. So, so who gets the credit? Well, it's really, okay. So I can tell you the whole story for sure. The, um, 
So the domain was like very much for sale. We didn't register it, first of all. It had already been registered, and this guy was selling it. In fact, these were the really early days. There was a he had taken out a booth at an expo, like a cloud expo, the first cloud expo, early cloud, like 2008, 2009. He was there sort of like, hey, I am only here. I'm, I'm paying eight grand for this booth to sell the domain name cloud.com. And does anyone want to buy it? And I remember, you know, we had just raised Series A and, and I think we probably joked about buying it, but we didn't really, you know, we just kind of thought it'd be really expensive and didn't really think much of it. And, um, and we... And we we had one of one of our board members had owned the donate domain name um, VM Ops like Virtual Machine Operations and um, and so we would we'd always kind of agreed we weren't going to keep that name but we were just going to use it as a while we were in stealth mode yeah, as like just placeholder kind of yeah. little placeholder name so we had this thing called VM Ops and um, and it was brutal it was the worst name ever because it looked like VMops like virtualized mops <laughs> that's true. Just, yeah it does yeah. Name. we all hated it and so we hired peter to be the vp of marketing and like one of the first goals peter Ulander, was was okay you need to we need to get a new name we have to come up with something and um, peter and some of the people on his team i mean i can't remember exactly who was that that sort of were like well these guys are selling cloud.com what do you think about that and um, I think we kind of debated it a little bit and sort of thought, well, we're not really a service. So it's kind of weird to be at cloud.com. It feels like we should be running a cloud. But I mean, Peter really was was right on. He pushed it. He said, no, this is a great name. Everyone's going to know who we are. You should really, we should really do this. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, I think we spent 130 grand. 100, it was a little over. It was definitely six figures. So we spent something like that. Um, but it was great. It was It was a great name. You know the product name CloudStack kind of stuck, and we were we were out there, um, you know, just just kind of running really fast. In fact, I, you know, that company went from you know zero to sixty faster than any company I've ever been a part of. I think we were we were kind of cooking, selling. I mean, I'm, you know, we we won some huge deals at places like BT and Korea Telecom, Zynga. You know, just on the back of a great product, a really simple approach to building infrastructure service. Yeah, um, no, I mean, the whole metaphor, I don't know. So in this case, you know, people always uh, talk about what a waste sometimes it is to buy these expensive URLs. And sometimes there's, you know, they're like millions of dollars. So I'm yeah. going to say in this case, I, whatever you paid, uh, you, I don't know. I, I think you uh, multiples, multiples uh, right. back on that, on that. So I guess we'll have well, to get... When Citrix buy us, they bought us as part of the, the whole due diligence of the whole thing. I think they valued the domain name at something like three million dollars. Oh, I, I would have, yeah. I mean, easily, right? So I just remember like Peter this negotiated is... the hell of a deal. I, I think he he definitely gets credit for that. The other the other great one was when we were getting acquired. You know, it's always tough to get acquired. Right? You've got, especially if you decide to sell a bit early, right? Like we were only three years old when we sold to Citrix, um, and. You know, for us, it was all, I mean, there was, you know, like 45 people in the company. The sale was for, you know, I think $200 million. It was a, you know, it was an incredible outcome. But I remember, you know, there's a little bit, people can tell you, you're always going to have to kind of convince your VCs to sell, right? Mm -hmm. Your VCs generally don't want to sell unless it's almost like. A, yeah, they, they it's, wanna, it's the big one. They're like, no, this is going to be huge. Don't do it. I get it. Never want to sell. And uh, I remember when we, the first offer came in to buy the company from Citrix, one of our VCs was like, I think that's just for the domain name. <laughs> I'll never forget. That was like my favorite line in the whole process. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Come on. <laughs> it was great. There's just the, you couldn't dismiss it any more, you know, out of hand than just like, no, no, I think they just want to buy the domain. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, for that much money, they couldn't possibly be wanting to also buy the company.
and uh but uh, it was great. It was it was an awesome run. You know, it was a it was a great time. Citrix is a great company. And right, I so like, I assume in this one, everyone did well. This seems like the the, the exciting uh, exit where everyone like makes money and gets good jobs at Citrix, and it's super fun. Is that is that true? It was. It was a fantastic. It was a fast, fantastic run to the company. It was uh, the timing was really interesting because, you know, we had um, you know CloudStack had kind of just really was taking off. We had started. We were competing with this company Eucalyptus that built another open source, of course. you know, yes. infrastructure software. So it was kind of CloudStack and in Eucalyptus that were competing, and um, and then you know this OpenStack thing kind of comes around two and a half years into the run, like just before we're acquired, and. You know, we, we found out about it. I remember I had just got back from Korea, actually, meeting with KT. And uh, I was feeling really good because I think we just closed this big deal with KT. And I land and um, and I'm, I'm, I've got like four messages from Shang. And he's like, hey, so there's this thing called OpenStack that Dell and uh, Citrix and NAPA, NASA are putting together. It's basically the same thing we've built, but they're going to build it as like an open source consortium. They want us to participate. I'm like, well, how do we participate in something? We already have one. We've already built it. Right. <laughs> he's like, he's like, it doesn't matter. We've got to participate. Yep. I'm like, really? It's like, yeah. He's like, how will it hurt? Right? It can't hurt anything. We'll get involved. If, if it turns out to be something, then we're involved. If it, does, it turns out to be nothing, then we just keep going forward with CloudStack. And um, and so um, so we dive in, and we're, we're like we're one of the founding members of OpenStack, even though in many ways we're and. And OpenStack was actually kind of a fork of Eucalyptus. I don't know if you know that. It was kind of like an even back in the days thing. There was like a lot of Eucalyptus code that they had sort of forked to make OpenStack. And then they later rewrote. But it was very architecturally like Eucalyptus. And so, you know, we were never huge fans of that architecture. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember why at this point. I just remember thinking, well, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it will, maybe either they'll, you know, be slow to get adoption and we'll still be able to sort of drive forward with, with CloudStack, which we obviously preferred. Um but, you know, we were right there in the middle of this OpenStack thing. So when Citrix bought us, there was like, I remember, you know, the, the the GM for the unit kind of coming in saying like, hey, we really love this company. We love all the success you have. The fact that you were smart enough to, you know, kind of jump in on OpenStack is really exactly the kind of thing we want. You know, we're starting, we're one of the, you know, founders of OpenStack as well. Um, and so we're, you know, but it, the hardest part of the acquisition was always this duality of having this CloudStack product that lots of people were using and really loved, but all this momentum behind OpenStack that we were, were constantly trying to figure out how to embrace. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do that because you're, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're at developers, especially, they're so passionate about what they've built and yeah, all their energy you do your on thing. it. You care about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we always were better selling CloudStack than we ever were at trying to participate in and sell OpenStack. And, uh, you know, in the end, three years later, you know, uh, we, you know, we had CloudStack was an Apache project and still rolling to this day, but it kind of felt like that whole space eventually just kind of ran into this, this wall of, it's just too complicated, yeah. too hard. People could, I mean, I, I started feeling it, at, you know, the fourth, fifth year in is, you know, we had a lot of enterprise customers and they were just like, man, you know, the resources we're putting into running this stuff is, is really high, it's especially too complicated. That seemed to be the, the overall yeah. thing. Well, I don't know. Listen, I mean, who am I to say, but let's, I, I think you guys made a great decision there, right? No one ever went broke by taking the money. So I think that seems like in <laughs> retrospect, seems pretty genius. You sold it maybe the exact right time. Um, but who knows? No, maybe we're not. So, yeah. so out of this though, then this brings us to present day. So I don't know, maybe a little bit back to the future. So you're, 
I don't know if you leave right away, but you, you decide to start Rancher Labs. So why don't you give us two things? For those that don't know, why don't you give us the quick, what does Rancher do? I think most people do, but it'd be good to get your take on it. And then why did you end up starting this one? Yeah, well, the Rancher was um, was really the, the same core team that started, uh, you know, when we, when we started Cloud.com, there was Shang, who was the founder, and there were about four of us who joined at the very first day, effectively. Um, Will Chan, who was our... He was sort of the head of UI and front end. Um, there was a, a guy named Alex who was the head of back end and Charity who ran the network. And then I was the only other per- business person. I just sort of did everything from sales and marketing and, and stuff to get us off the ground. And um, Will, Shang, and I, you know, just ended up working really closely over the years as Will kind of became the head of all engineering and I became the head of all sales. We got really comfortable with each other and, and really just enjoyed, uh, just really, really enjoyed every day working with these guys. So when we were kind of, we did, you know, we had sort of a three-year deal with Citrix to stay. And at the end of the three years, it's funny, we, I don't think we talked once over the course of the three years about what to do afterwards. Um, and then we were on a plane flying to Germany or somewhere, and Sheng and I were sitting next to each other, and we were talking across the aisle. And I remember we, were, we started talking about Amazon. I'm like, how huge do you think Amazon is going to be? <laughs> and we were, we were talking about, like, well, how big can they get? They, they really could get quite large. And we were talking about the the potential of it to to really grow and 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 then we started thinking like what on earth could possibly disrupt that and and we kept coming back to containers and we kept thinking well the only thing that's going to disrupt that or potentially you know change is if this new layer of technology starts to emerge that that kind of runs uniformly everywhere and you know we we start to we start to kind of investigate that idea and I think Darren. Who was uh, who was working at Citrix at the time, but actually was one of our very first customers. He was the chief architect at GoDaddy, Darren Shepard. And you know, back in the early days of Cloud.com, we we closed them as a customer and started to get to know Darren. And and we always liked Darren because he kept rewriting our product for us. Like he kept he was, he was like the classic customer and be like, God, your product's horrible. And we're like, well, what? And Shang, if you ever meet Shang, is like is you know, he, he's such a pragmatist and like mm-hmm. any negative feedback is even, is much more valuable than positive. Yeah. Feedback. Yeah. Something to act on. Right. He's <laughs> like, Oh yeah, let me, let me go talk to that guy again. So he just fell in love with Darren and was always talking to Darren about all the flaws and the problems in cloud stack. And, um, and so, you know, Darren, Darren just, you know, had so many brilliant ideas about containers. And as we were, we're kind of thinking, you know, pretty quickly, the four of us decided this would be an area that would be worth you know, really diving into. And we weren't even 100% sure which, you know, I think in the, the whole time we always believed we'd wanted to build something that kind of role, had the same type of role in this ecosystem that the CloudStack was trying to do. Like what would be that layer of technology that would manage and deploy and orchestrate and operate containers and networks and storage and, and everything so that you could do computing? Because that, that just seemed to be what we enjoyed thinking about. And, um, and so Rancher was born of that in 2014, we, uh, you know, it was still really early days for this. I think Docker was about a year old. Um, I think Darren had just spoken at the first DockerCon right out, right before we started the company. And we, we, we started working on a bunch of little pieces. We're just kind of thinking about, you know, how would you do cluster management? This was before Kubernetes was, was really a thing. I think Kubernetes had just been announced maybe, but we were, we were playing with some software called Cattle that would do Kubernetes orchestration. Um, and we we just kind of started rolling from there, imagining 
you know, in, in this new world, you're going to have a layer that manages clusters and runs clusters in lots of different places, manages apps, manages users, figures out what they're allowed to do, ensures they can do it securely and, and kind of becomes this new platform for everything you need to do around containers. And, and really Rancher kind of almost wrote itself as we as we kind of took all of what we'd learned about building clouds and, and then applied it to this new layer. And and so we started working on Rancher and it, it, it you know, it's grown into this huge open source project that um is used by tens of thousands of teams to manage you know their containers everywhere you know so i think the number one question when people when it comes up people are always asking about well you know obviously you're you have all the big boys aws gcp azure like everybody's you know now we've got um you know our friends at vmware and uh, red hat everybody's you know got their version of kubernetes at this point so I mean, so you definitely, I think you're in the right place, right time. But now, <laughs> if you will, you've got yeah. some big, big competitors. So, like, how do you, like, how do you make sense of this when you're talking to customers and there's sort of, like, a lot of customers are seeking education. Like, where does Rancher fit in? Like, how does someone, how do you explain it to somebody? Who's the person that should be using it? You know, I think we were really lucky. We figured out sort of two really important things early on that, that have ended up being these really key, you know, kind of calling cards for Rancher that today. One was... You know, we never wanted to be a distro of Kubernetes. So we we have a distro of Kubernetes called RKE, and we have another tiny, lightweight one called K3S. We've we've created distros, but they're they've always been separate from Rancher. The idea of Rancher was always that you know Kubernetes was going to become a standard, more like TCP/IP than vSphere, right? That there was going to be a standard way, and you were going to be able to find and get Kubernetes from anyone, anywhere, right? Whether it was the big cloud providers or you know, spinning up yourself or, or running it out on the edge or getting it from, you know, if you're in China, you get it from Ali Cloud, whatever, right? You could get the Kubernetes, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like we invented Kubernetes or had any, you know, or for that matter, invented Docker. Um, what we always understood was that you weren't just going to, like, I think our big realization was it wasn't going to go like this Borg vision. That everyone's going to have one giant cluster that they run on their own infrastructure and that they, they sort of optimize. It was going to be messier. The reality was going to be that you're going to run lots of Kubernetes. I think we, I'm going to speak for everyone. We can confirm. That is true. Yeah, that right. is 100% correct. And so we figured out this. And then we started working, like, on, you know, we just started working on those problems. And so we were dealing with multi-cluster management and how to, you know, have users with different privileges and different clusters, how to set security policy universally, how to, uh, you know, how to launch, launch, you know, GKE and Google or EKS and AWS, and then, you know, bring all of your config and your apps and your catalogs and your, you know, your monitoring, your logging, your approach to storage with you wherever you go. And that's what Rancher does so well is it is, this 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 layer of technology that is open source so it doesn't lock people in that's like been super critical and then it is um it runs everywhere it runs on and it runs just as well on you know the cloud hosted kubernetes as it does on our kubernetes or it'll run just as well on vmware's kubernetes it really doesn't matter um so that's been really important and what we found as well is that we could, you know, we could embrace a very open model, um, which, you know, we had done with CloudStack and, and kind of we're pretty big believers in open source, but we, we felt like there was a really good business model there providing that layer and then and then just delivering enterprise support. Mm -hmm. And so we've taken this 100% open approach. We, we innovate on a lot of different levels. Like these days, half of what we're doing is edge and just kind of helping people run Kubernetes in factories and then you know, vehicles and in, in stores and on, you know, wind turbines and just, you name it, 
There's people that are like, oh, single node Kubernetes cluster is going to be the new Linux. It's the embedded right. system platform. Well, that's what and, I, I don't know. This maybe you can correct me. That's when I try to explain it to people. I usually tell it, say, it's a simplified approach to running Kubernetes. That's that's to me the real value proposition. Am I underselling it? Am I making okay. it too complicated? Yeah, that's K3S. K3S is the simple. Rancher is actually relative. Like I think of K3S as you know, just, hey, what if all the defaults were auto-pre-configured and installing Kubernetes took three minutes instead of a ton of a ton of work? And so I think that's why K3S took off so much last year. Mm-hmm. Even more, like it's used just as much in, you know, in other use cases besides Edge. I think we were thinking Edge when we built it, but there's so many people well, who I use think, it. In the I guess the reason I, I dr- I'm drawn to it just because I think yeah. if you get into containers, right, like it's the the experience that is great the the following things that i think are great is like if you want to run some app that you you don't really want to install it you just go to docker hub download it and then boom it's running in like 20 seconds it's like fantastic yeah. experience right it's just <laughs> like you're like oh my gosh why was it always not like this and then you later on you're like i need to package this thing up and then you're like i can actually just build my own container and it just like, will work for everyone that again usually fairly quick fantastic then you start you're like well, i'm just going to run this this container in production, right? And then it's like, ah, oh, this is the moment, right? We're like, and then stuff starts to break, right? You're like, oh, I need some load balancing. And then, you know, if you look at just Kubernetes, it's like a giant cliff to that next thing, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I have to read and learn so much to even get to the point to run this in like some production way. So it feels like K3S is sort of like that bridging that gap. It's like, oh, well, here's something I could get running really fast and like continue on the learning curve, right? Without having to like, I don't know, start from scratch. So I don't know. That's my take. What, what's your take? Uh, you nailed it. It's the ease of use, right? It's it's more about packaging. We're, we're, we're in a bit of a push right now to get it accepted into the CNCF. We want to just make it a, a standard component of the ecosystem. And there's there's a lot of debate about whether it's a distro or it's something else or it's a package. And we're like, well, I don't know what it is. I, well, I'll it should, though. I mean, we should make, I'll just pile on your push there. Like, it would be great for the CNCF to just, like, endorse something. Like, here it is. Like, here's the thing that works in, like, a few minutes, right? There's always the yeah. thing that we can hire 100 people or pay a lot of money for. Like, that's out there, and you're going to need that at some point, right? But, like, here's just something that you can use right away. So, I don't know. I just felt like it, the learning curve, like, to me, it isn't a learning curve. It's just, like, a cliff. You get to a point, and you're like, oh, my gosh. I'm never going to get over this. So, so they should do it. I don't know. I'm just piling onto your idea. Hopefully, they'll do it. I'm ready. Yeah, all of the difficulty of Kubernetes just melts away when you use K3S. And um, it's it's been, you know, it's really great for these edge use cases, too. I mean, we're doing this factory in Germany where they're literally putting this on every every computer, right? Every com- And they're going to distribute every bit of software as containers. They're going to just orchestrate it all the same. And you start thinking about what if Kubernetes was just basically Linux, right? If those things just became the same thing. And all of a sudden, you get all of this benefit of an API-exposed endpoint anywhere, it's just a question of whether you cluster it or run it individually. I mean, this is what's getting me up in the morning. I just get so excited about this idea that we could, you know, we just released this project called Fleet, which is how do you manage like 100,000, a million endpoints that are all individual Kubernetes clusters. And we're doing that because people want to put it into like set-top boxes or they want to put it on cars. Or they want to put it in, you know, every traffic light that gets shipped out because, it's just a way better way to ship and release and then manage the software once you drop it in because you can just write a consistent set of controls and not have to, you know, kind of customize a ton of, of special code around just the process of operating your software. So that, that I think this is going to happen. I'm, I'm, All right, I'm with you. Well, I said, uh, I know Mesosphere didn't, didn't quite go the way, but they had that data center operating system, DCOS. I remember saying, like, that's the metaphor. 
that it didn't yeah. so uh so i want someone to build that so it sounds like you're doing well before we get, run out of completely run out of time so give us then because i i didn't do a good job then explaining rke or uh so give me your you know your corporate pitch what's the thing what's the big thing i should buy from you if i if i don't want to just use the lightweight uh system no, the lightweight system is is what I mean. Our approach is really different. So, like everything we build is open. So, Rancher's mm-hmm. open, RKE's open, K3S. We've got this great Longhorn project that storage is open. Everything we do is open. It's all 100% Apache licensed. And then, what we do is we just then provide enterprise support for people who are putting this stuff into production and they need it. So, only about two or three percent of our users are our customers. I think we we're up to about 400 enterprise customers now around the world, and they're. They're who you'd imagine, right? Huge tech companies and banks and governments and, you know, all sorts of retailers and the like. But it's it's basically, you know, we give you this platform that, that takes Kubernetes everywhere. It's like, okay, I'm going to be in the cloud. I've got Kubernetes. I'm in my data center. That's where you run RKE and it just installs on, on bare metal or VMware or whatever you want to run Kubernetes there. I'm in my stores or my locations. I run K3S. But it all is part of Rancher, right? The Rancher control plane, that the management layer is is really central because you have to find a way to to push out all the security policy and and operate these clusters and manage the health of everything so um we just keep it really simple built you build with the use case in mind kind of whether you use rke or k3s or eks or gke or any kubernetes um you know kind of consolidate that control plane so that you actually get the benefits of of Kubernetes as a service, not Kubernetes as a, as like the chicken pox that are all over your business and, and become you know, risk, become risk. That's, right. that's what happens. Kubernetes is a maintenance nightmare. That's what I think a lot yeah. of us are. <laughs> a lot of us are living. All right. Well, that's fantastic. Well, it sounds like, Hey, all right, everybody should go download the product of your choice. And then if you need support, you know, go, go, uh, go, uh, contact our friends here at Rancher. So, um, all right. Well, you know, we, I think we hit on a bunch of it, but where can people find you on the internet if they want to contact you and talk more about Rancher? I'm really good on LinkedIn. If you just look me up, Shannon Williams, Rancher, I'm on there. I go, um, I'm on Twitter, SMW355. And you can always just hit rancher.com, ask for a meeting, just say, hey, I heard Shannon. Can I set up, sketch some time with him and want to talk about what we're doing? Easy to find us, easy to find me. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Hey, Brandon, thank you so much. This was a blast and you do a great job. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, of course, uh, you know, I learned a lot about Rancher and uh, I'm going to go download it just like everyone else. But uh, a couple other things we'd like everyone to do. So uh, this is the first time you've ever listened to uh, Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. You can probably subscribe uh, in your podcast player right now, but you can also visit us at uh, www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you'll find all the show notes you're going to, uh, for this episode and all the other episodes and as a bonus, if you want, if you send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, I will be happy to send you as many stickers as you would like. So definitely check that out. And with that, we will talk to you next time.